evidence and answers. Is global warming the greatest existential threat to mankind? Some say yes. Others say it is overblown. Some parts of the world are experiencing cooling temperatures, while other areas are experiencing a warming in temperatures. What is the truth on global warming? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Now let's listen to the conclusion of an interview Pat had recently with Dr. Hugh Ross as he tackles the topic of climate change. You'll know we're on the verge of an ice age when you see snow and ice accumulating, first in western Siberia and second in Labrador. There's some hint that we're now seeing it in western Labrador, or pardon me, western Siberia, but we're not seeing it in Labrador. But all tells us this could happen relatively quickly, and therefore it's in our best interest to do what we can to ensure that polar ice cap doesn't melt. Well, that reminds me of that movie. I think it was called The Day After Tomorrow, where suddenly I think the uh, northeast or northern United States was suddenly, you know, almost overnight under an ice age. So you're saying that could be a realistic scenario? It could be. It takes about a thousand years before we got thousands of feet of ice covering Manhattan. So it's not going to happen overnight, but it'll happen quickly enough that's going to be a major disturbance uh, to human civilization. I think that's part of the confusion. You know, some people are looking at temperatures saying, hey, actually, it's getting a little colder on this side of the world. Uh, there's more ice and snow developing, and there's others on the other side of the world saying, no, it's getting warmer, and the ice is melting out here, and the tides of the oceans are rising. And so could that be contributing to the various temperatures around the world and, and the confusion we see here? Yes, a lot of people are confused by that. What you need to pay attention to is the global mean temperature uh, because all the climate uh, change models tell us you're going to get parts of the world that will get colder and parts that will get warmer. But if you average it all out, you get more warming uh, than you get cooling. So, yeah, right now uh, we're seeing significant uh, cooler climates in Eastern Europe. But all the global warming models predict exactly that, that Eastern Europe will get colder. And what you get is Western North America uh, getting warmer, uh, Canada getting warmer. There's some of the models tell us that we would expect Eastern Asia to get colder and then Western Asia uh, to get quite a bit warmer. Uh, but, for example, I have a sister that lives in central British Columbia, and uh, she's been living there now for 35 years. So when she first moved there, she would get six weeks of 30 to 35 below temperatures. She says now the temperature never drops below zero in the wintertime. So that's an example of quite dramatic uh, warming. And, uh, you know, I'm a, a hiker and a mountaineer, and I love the beautiful mountains of Canada. But I can tell you those glaciers are rapidly melting. Well, Hugh, um, how long do you think, you know, if we continue on the path that we're on with small changes, I mean, how long do you think it'll take till we see these drastic changes in temperature that you're talking about? Well, the traditional global warming models, basically we're predicting we're going to be in trouble in about 20 years. But the new data tells us that, yes, 
those models are correct that the climate's going to get warmer, but they overestimated how quickly that's going to happen. Basically, they were off by about a factor of two. So it means we got a little more time than what we thought. On the other hand, to do nothing for the next 10 years, I think, would be a disaster. And I think what's happening is you've got one side basically shouting an alarm, saying we're facing an imminent catastrophe. If we don't take drastic action, we're going to be in deep trouble. But the action they're recommending is passing these draconian laws that no one's going to like. You know, shut off your air conditioning, stop driving your car, let's not produce anything through factories that use fossil fuels anymore, let's build more windmills, in spite of the fact that uh, windmills take a lot of carbon to maintain and kill a lot of birds at the same time. You know, what I explain in my book is that if you alarm the public too much, you're going to have unintended consequences. You're going to have politicians passing laws that they really haven't studied to sufficient depth, and you wind up making things worse rather than better. What we really need to do is provide people with an economic incentive to stabilize the climate. Basically go to people and say, here's a better way to do business that's going to make you more money at the same time stabilize the climate. And so, again, humans are fundamentally selfish. If I can show them how they're going to make more money, chances are they're going to go ahead and do it. And my whole point is, if you have to pass a law to force people to do something they don't want to do, it's not going to work. We need to do things where we don't need any laws. We simply provide people with the appropriate economic incentives, which is why I loaded the book up with all kinds of ways we can move ahead to stabilize the climate while we boost the world economy rather than cripple the world economy. If you do that, people are going to say, well, what are we waiting for? Let's get it done. Yes, you know, Hugh, as Christians, you know, what is our mandate regarding the environment and God's creation? Well, God's given us a mandate to manage the resources of the earth. That's part of what I put in the book. We've been endowed with a huge treasure chest of biodeposits, not just coal, oil, and natural gas, but limestone, marble, gypsum, concentrated metals. He wants us to use those resources that he's generously provided us with to manage the planet for our benefit, which means for our economic benefit, and the benefit of all other life, which means we should seek solutions that are going to maximally benefit the ecosystem, make our planet more beautiful, benefit the economy of the world, especially the poor. You know, that's the biblical mandate we have. And so, for example, we look at how we've abused the planet. You know, we've made the Sahara Desert ten times bigger than what it was in the days of the Roman Empire. You know, I think it's sobering to realize at the height of Rome, what is now the Sahara Desert was where they planted grain and the grain fed all of Europe. Today it feeds nobody. Moreover, all the wildlife has left because it's become a dry, hot desert. And the reason why is people on the south edge of the Sahara have been stripping the land of vegetation and using that vegetation for cooking fuel. So one of the proposals I put in the book, let's give the sub-Saharan peoples all the kerosene they want for free and tell them they can burn as much as they want mm -hmm. on the condition they stop stripping the land of vegetation and they work with us to replant the Sahara Desert. 
and literally within 20 to 30 years, we can shrink it back to where it was in the days of the Roman Empire. And now all that desert land well, can be productive to raise wheat and rice and other grains that can be sold to provide income for those North, North African people. The wildlife is going to return. It's going to become a beautiful place that tourists will want to visit. And you soak up huge quantities of greenhouse gases with all that new vegetation. Everybody wins. Yes, you know, I believe the cultural mandate teaches us to use technology and the resources of the earth to enhance human life. But as you're saying, to do it responsibly in a way in which we care for God's creation. So technology is not bad, but we need to use it responsibly. And the Bible gives us good guidelines for that, doesn't it? It does. And basically, when you use the word responsibly, people think sacrifice. And what we're really talking about, for example, is responsibly managing the forests and the grasslands of the world. But if you do it in a responsible way, paying attention to your benefit and the benefit of all your life, it's actually where you make the most money. You get the most return on your investment. So I know there's a lot of alarm right now about what's happening in the Amazon jungle. I mean, literally 20% of the jungle has been stripped away by people going in there, cutting down the trees, burning them. They're not even selling the trees. They just burn them and turn it into pasture land because they think they can make more money uh, raising cattle. They're not aware that the soil of the Amazon is nutrient poor. You can raise cattle for about a decade, and then all the nutrients are gone, and that pasture land becomes a desert. Instead, I think we need to go to the Amazon people and say, rather than trying to make money on cattle, go into the jungle and thin out the jungle. Harvest the big old trees. That's where you're going to make the most money when you sell that for lumber. And those big old trees are in danger of dying. And when they die, they decay and release greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And if too many of them die, it stops the capacity of wildlife to be able to move through the forest. So selectively harvest uh, those old uh, big trees and then replant them with young trees. The young trees grow two to four times faster than the old trees, which means you're going to be able to double the amount of greenhouse gases that the Amazon jungle pulls out of the atmosphere. You're going to have a healthier jungle because you're not going to have all this dead material in the jungle. The wildlife is going to be able to thrive. You're going to make a whole lot more money uh, with that kind of lumbering approach, and you pull out huge quantities of greenhouse gases uh, from the atmosphere. Yeah, Hugh, those are some great proposals there. What are some other solutions to the slowing down the climate change? I mean, is going to all electric cars by 2035 the kind of answer we're looking for and getting rid of uh, these factories and going all solar power? Well, I mean, here in California, they passed this law where they're not going to let us be able to buy a gasoline-powered car mm-hmm. after the year 2035. But guess where we get almost all of our electricity? (laughs) We get almost all of it from burning natural gas. Uh And so, you know, I have a a gasoline-powered car that's 40% efficient. The natural gas we burn to make electricity is only 25% efficient. So my car actually has a lower 
carbon footprint than what they're proposing. Now, if they could find a way to get that electricity without burning fossil fuels, they may be onto something. And California is actually thinking about that, of trying to get it all uh, through wind power and solar power. But the problem is you'd have to cover so much of California with solar panels, it's going to impact the ecosystem. I mean, that desert fauna is not going to thrive if everything's covered over with solar panels. And the problem with the wind generation, that the wind panels have to be maintained and you've got to burn a lot of carbon to manufacture those replacements. Moreover, those wind turbines kill tens of thousands of birds. It's not good for the ecosystem. But one thing I'm proposing is, you know, there's this whole focus on nuclear fusion reactors, about trying to get electricity by fusing hydrogen into helium. And they've been working on that since uh, 1950. But the technological barriers are enormous. And the cost, even if we get past those barriers, likewise is enormous. So one of the things I'm proposing is that we need to really consider thorium nuclear reactors. Two of them were built in the early 1960s, and uh, we stopped doing that because one of the problems with thorium nuclear reactors, you can't use the thorium to make nuclear weapons. But today that's considered an advantage. We could literally give all the nations of the world thorium nuclear reactors without any fear that they're going to use them to make nuclear weapons. Moreover, unlike uranium, with thorium, it's impossible to have a meltdown. The thorium is safe to mine. There's three times more of it in the crust of the earth than there's uranium. And as far as the toxic waste, with uranium reactors, you've got radioactive waste that's dangerous for 50,000 years. For thorium, it's only 50 to 200 years. And there's so much thorium in the crust of the earth, it could provide 100% of the power needs of all the nations of the world for thousands of years. And it would provide it at less than half the cost of hydroelectric power. Currently, that ranks as the cheapest source of energy, hydroelectric power. But with thorium, you could actually beat out hydroelectric power. And you know, what I also put in the book is that planet Earth has 630 times as much thorium as what we expect to find in any other rocky planet. We are sitting on the thorium champion of the universe. And I don't think that that's an accident. It's because of all that thorium, we have protective magnetic field. We have the plate tectonics that we need. But we also have the resources we need to solve our current energy crisis. Well, you, you know, how are politicians responding to this kind of research? Well, the politicians don't know about it. Matter of fact, a lot of the climate change scientists don't know about it because they're focused on a narrow subdiscipline. I've already gotten some good feedback from scientists that are researching the climate. They're basically thanking us at Reasons to Believe for taking an interdisciplinary approach to climate. I mean, if you read my book, you're going to see astrophysics in there. You're going to see paleontology. You're going to see atmospheric physics in there. You will see climatology. That is part of it. Uh, but it's just one part. We literally go through all the sciences, the chemistry, the biology. We even look at the viruses and how they all play a role uh, in helping to explain the climate stability we have and what we can do to sustain it. 
Yes. Now, Hugh, those of us here in Asia and the Pacific, I was kind of interested when you talked about also wise management of life resources. And you talked about rice paddy management, alternative meat source, and even restoring whale populations. Of course, we in Hawaii are really big into that. Can you just briefly just skim on some of those? Well, the whales are interesting because we nearly wiped them out a hundred years ago. And now the populations are starting to rise. And uh, the, the first thing they noticed was when the sperm whale population went up, the giant squid population went up, and the giant squid were bigger than they were before. The enigma is the only thing that feeds on giant squid are sperm whales. So you would think the return of the sperm whales would devastate the giant squid, but it's just the opposite. And a group of researchers discovered that sperm whales, they will dive thousands of feet beneath the surface to find the giant squid and feed on them. And those deep giant squid are very rich in iron. And these sperm whales basically take that iron and they defecate because they get way more iron than what they need. And so they defecate the iron, and they only defecate at the surface. But instead of defecating insoluble iron, they defecate soluble iron. And what that does is it fertilizes uh, the photosynthesis that takes place with the cyanobacteria on the surface. And that's the base of the food chain. So thanks to the return of sperm whales, we have a lot more cyanobacteria in the oceans. Uh, That's two-thirds of the photosynthetic life on planet Earth. So that enhanced photosynthesis is pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And then the zooplankton feed on the uh, phytoplankton. You know, fish feed on the uh, zooplankton. And uh, the big fish feed on the small fish. And then you've got the giant squid uh, feeding uh, on the fish. And so the whole ecosystem benefits and explains why you actually have a larger population of giant squid in the face of their only predator, actually seeing a population increase. And more, and more recent studies show us that's happening with all the whale species. So it's to our benefit to bring the whale populations back to where they were uh, 300 years ago. We're not there yet, uh, but if we get there, we're going to be able to harvest a lot more fish out of the ocean, and there's going to be a lot more greenhouse gases pulled out of the atmosphere. Wow. For more solutions like that, go get Hugh Ross's book here, Weathering Climate Change. Uh, Hugh, does it seem inevitable, though, that we're heading towards some kind of a global end? Well, I do point out in the book that there are very tangible solutions for stabilizing the climate, solutions that will benefit everybody. It's a win-win-win all the way across. It can be done relatively quickly, but it can't sustain the climate forever. Inevitably, these natural cycles are going to bring about a cooling event. But I think we can put off that inevitable cooling for at least another 1,000 years, maybe even 1,500 years. And you know, that, I think, helps all my friends who are pre-millennial, because uh, if you've got Jesus reigning here on planet Earth for 1,000 years, you know, you're going to want him reigning when you've got a stable climate. So there is a way to actually make that happen. Uh, to stabilize the climate for 14, 1,500 years, but there comes a point where it simply can't be sustained. But from a biblical perspective, we're told that our Earth and our universe will remain 
until the full number of human beings that God intends to redeem have in fact been redeemed. And I'm confident that full number can be reached in a lot less than 14 or 1500 years. Yes, well, Hugh, you know, as we bring this show to a close, there are not many churches talking about the environment issues. What are some things that pastors and churches can do to help address this issue and educate their congregations? Well, first of all, this is an incredible opportunity to share your Christian faith. It's a principle you see in Acts 15, where you got the Apostle Paul going to Athens, and how does he engage the philosophers there? He engages them with the latest ideas. And everybody around the world is talking about climate change. And that's going to continue way past this pandemic we're experiencing. And so that gives all of us who are believers an opportunity to engage people. And I think just simply engaging them with the idea that this is no accident, that this is an example of phenomenal fine-tuning design, which testifies that there really is a creator God out there, which gives you a bridge to begin a spiritual conversation uh, with your friends. And so what I share with uh, pastors, I'm a pastor myself, just making the point, look, we are all commanded to take the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world. This issue of climate change and global warming gives us a phenomenal opportunity to get people interested and the most important issues of life. And, you know, anyone who wants a free chapter of the book, they can get it at reasons.org slash Ross. So if you want a little snip of what's in the book, uh, that's how you can get a free chapter. Yes, you know, and I believe as believers in Jesus Christ and with God's Word, I think we have the strongest and most balanced and true environmental message to give. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of churches are not preaching a message, you know, as you said, on the environment. And I know when I speak on campuses around Asia and even the United States, boy, when I give the message on Christian environmentalism, that room is packed because a lot of people have never heard anything on Christian environmentalism. So I think what you're saying, you know, is great. You're building a bridge to a, on a topic that everybody is interested in. Well, that's a very good point, because Christians, especially in America, have a reputation of being anti-environmentalists. And so when people hear there's a Christian who's actually interested in creation care, uh, taking care of the environment, that, as you say, will draw a crowd. Uh, But all of us who are Christians should be taking that perspective. The Bible is clear. Uh, Jesus wants us to occupy until he returns. He gave us this planet to manage. I mean, frankly, as a Christian, I'm going to be embarrassed that Jesus comes back and he says, well, how did this all get so messed up? I told you to take care of it, and uh, look how messy it is. And so on that basis alone, I think we've got a responsibility uh, to manage the planet well. And also uh, to see this as an opportunity. People now are panicked. They're alarmed. And so just realizing, hey, God's given us the resources. He is in control. There's no need to panic, and there's no need to think you're caught between a rock and a hard place. We have a message of hope, and if we can show them a message of hope through climate change, they're going to be willing to come to us for a message of hope about their spiritual life and their eternal uh, security. Fantastic. 
You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Hugh Ross, president of Reasons to Believe. We're talking about his great book here that we highly recommend, Weathering Climate Change. And Hugh, if people want more information, not only on this book, but on science and the Bible and your organization, where can they go for more information? Well, reasons.org, that's our website. There's literally tens of thousands of articles on science-faith issues. Uh, We've got a search engine so you can pick up the ones you want. There's video clips there. You can watch debates that we've had uh, with atheist scientists. Reasons.org, and as far as our books are concerned, reasons.org slash the last name of the author, you can get free chapters. So like all the books I've put out, you can get a free chapter at reasons.org slash Ross. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, a fantastic uh, organization. So, Hugh, thanks for being with us here once again on Evidence and Answers. Oh, my pleasure. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally. That number in Hawaii is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukrat. <laughs>